Chapter 2 of A Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a reading by Paul King, pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj. A Short Account of the History of Mathematics by W. W. Rouse Ball. Chapter 2 the ionian and pythagorean schools six hundred to four hundred b c first period mathematics under greek influence this period begins with the teaching of thales circa six hundred b c and ends with the capture of alexandria by the mohammedans in or about six hundred and forty one a d the characteristic feature of this period is the development of geometry it will be remembered that i commenced the last chapter by saying that the history of mathematics might be divided into three periods namely that of mathematics under greek influence that of the mathematics of the middle ages and of the renaissance and lastly that of modern mathematics the next four chapters chapters two three four and five deal with the history of mathematics under greek influence to these it will be convenient to add one chapter six on the byzantine school since through it the results of greek mathematics were transmitted to western europe and another chapter seven on the systems of numeration which were ultimately displaced by the system introduced by the arabs i should add that many of the dates mentioned in these chapters are not known with certainty and must be regarded as only approximately correct Chapter 2. The Ionian and Pythagorean Schools, circa 600 B.C. to 400 B.C. With the foundation of the Ionian and Pythagorean Schools, we emerge from the region of antiquarian research and conjecture into the light of history. The materials at our disposal for estimating the knowledge of the philosophers of these schools previous to about the year 430 B.C. are, however, very scanty not only have all but fragments of the different mathematical treatises then written been lost but we possess no copies of the elaborate histories of mathematics written about three hundred twenty five b c by eudemus who was a pupil of aristotle and theophrastus respectively luckily proculus who about 450 A.D. wrote a commentary on Euclid's Elements, was familiar with the history of Eudemus, and gives a summary of that part of it which dealt with geometry. We have also a fragment of the general view of mathematics, written by Geminus, about 50 B.C., in which the methods of proof used by the early Greek geometricians are compared with those current at a later date in addition to these general statements we have biographies of a few of the leading mathematicians and some scattered notes in various writers which allusions are made to the lives and works of others the original authorities are criticized and discussed at length in the works mentioned in the footnote to the heading of the chapter the ionian school thales the founder of the earliest Greek school of mathematics and philosophy was Thales, one of the seven sages of Greece, who was born about 640 BC at Miletus and died in the same town at about 550 BC. 
The materials for an account of his life consist of little more than a few anecdotes which have been handed down by tradition. During the early part of his life he was engaged partly in commerce and partly in public affairs, and to judge by two stories that have been preserved he was then as distinguished for shrewdness in business and readiness in resource as he was subsequently celebrated in science. It was probably as a merchant that Thales first went to Egypt, but during his leisure there he studied astronomy and geometry. He was middle-aged when we, he returned to Miletus. He then seems to have abandoned business and public life and to have devoted himself to the study of philosophy and science, subjects which in the Ionian, Pythagorean, and perhaps the Athenian schools were inextricably involved. He continued to live at Miletus till his death circa 550 BC. His views on philosophy do not here concern us. We cannot form any exact idea as to how Thales presented his geometrical teaching. We infer, however, from Proculus that it consisted of a number of isolated propositions which were not arranged in a logical sequence, but that the proofs were deductive so that the theorems were not a mere statement of induction from a large number of special instances as probably was the case with the Egyptian geometricians. The deductive character which he thus gave to the science is his chief claim to distinction. The following comprise all the propositions that we can now, with reasonable probability, refer back to him. 1. The angles at the base of an isosceles triangle are equal. Euclid 1.5. Proculus seems to imply that this was proved by taking another exactly equal isosceles triangle, turning it over, and then superposing it on the first, a sort of experimental demonstration. Number two, if two straight lines cut one another, the vertically opposite angles are equal, Euclid 1.15. Thales may have regarded this as obvious, for Proculus adds that Euclid was the first to give a strict proof of it. Number three, a triangle is determined if its base and base angles be given, cf Euclid 126. Apparently this was applied to find the distance of a ship at sea, the base being a tower and the base angles being obtained by observation. Number four, the sides of equiangular triangles are proportionals, Euclid 6.4 or perhaps rather Euclid 6.2. This is said to have been used by Thales when in Egypt to find the height of a pyramid. In a dialogue given by Plutarch, the speaker addressing Thales says, Placing your stick at the end of the shadow of the pyramid, you make the sun's rays two triangles, and so proved that the height of the pyramid was the length of the stick as the shadow of the pyramid to the shadow of the stick. The king Amasis, who was present, is said to have been amazed by this application of abstract science, and the Egyptians seem to have been previously unacquainted with the theorem. Number 5. A circle is bisected by any diameter. This may have been enunciated by Thales, but it must have been recognized as obvious fact from the earliest times. Number 6. The angle in a semicircle is a right angle, Euclid 331. This appears to have been regarded as the most remarkable of the geometric achievements of Thales, and it is stated that on inscribing a right-angled triangle in a circle, he sacrificed an ox to the immortal gods. It is supposed that he proved 
the proposition by joining the center of the circle to the apex of the right angle, thus splitting the triangle into two isosceles triangles, and then applied the proposition above. Proposition 1 if this be the correct account of his proof he must have been aware that the sum of the angles of a right angle triangle is equal to the two right angles it has been ingeniously suggested that the shape of the tiles used in paving floors may have afforded an experimental demonstration of the latter result namely that the sum of the angles of a triangle is equal to the two right angles we know from eudemus that the first geometers proved the general property separately for three species of triangles and it is not unlikely that they proved it thus the area about a point can be filled by the angles of six equilateral triangles or tiles hence the proposition is true for an equilateral triangle again a rectangle the sum of whose angles is four right angles can be divided into two equal right angled triangles hence the proposition is true for a right angled triangle and it will be noticed that tiles of such a shape would give an ocular demonstration of this case it would appear that this proof was given at first only in the case of isosceles right angled triangles but probably it was extended later so as to cover any right angled triangle lastly any triangle can be split into the sum of two right-angled triangles by drawing a perpendicular from the biggest angle on the opposite side and therefore again the proposition is true the first of these proofs is evidently included into the last but the early greek geometers were timid about generalizing their proofs and were afraid that any additional condition imposed on the triangle might vitiate the general result Thales wrote on astronomy, and among his contemporaries was more famous as an astronomer than as a geometrician. It is said that one night, when walking out, he was looking so intently at the stars that he tumbled into a ditch, on which an old woman exclaimed, How can you tell what's going on in the sky when you can't even see what's lying at your own feet? An anecdote which was often quoted to illustrate the unpractical character of philosophers without going into astronomical details it may be mentioned that he taught that a year contained three hundred and sixty-five days and not as was previously reckoned twelve months of thirty days each according to some recent critics he believed the earth to be a disk but it seems to be more probable that he was aware that it was spherical he explained the causes of the eclipses both of the sun and the moon and it is well known that he predicted a solar eclipse which would take place on or about the time he foretold the actual date was may twenty eighth five eighty five b c but through this prophecy and its fulfilment gave extraordinary prestige to his teaching and secured him the name of one of the seven sages of greece it is most likely that he only made use of one of the egyptian or chaldean registers which stated that solar eclipses recur on intervals of eighteen years and eleven days among the pupils of thales were anaximander mamersus and mandriatus of the last two mentioned we know next to nothing Anaximander is better known. He was born in 611 BC and died in 545 BC and succeeded Thales as the head of the school at Miletus. 
according to suidas he wrote a treatise on geometry on which tradition says he paid particular attention to the properties of spheres and dwelt at length on the philosophical ideas involved in the concept of infinity in space and time he constructed terrestrial and celestial globes he is alleged to have introduced the use of style or gnomon into greece this in principle consisted only of a stick stuck upright in a horizontal piece of ground it was originally used as a sundial in which case it was placed at the centre of three concentric circles so that every two hours the end of its shadow passed from one circle to another such sundials have been found at pompeii and tusculum it is said that he employed these styles to determine his meridian presumably by marking the lines of shadow cast by the style at sunrise and sunset on the same day and taking the plane bisecting the angle so formed and thence by observing the time of year when the noon altitude of the sun was greatest and least he got the solstices thence by taking half the sum of these noon altitudes of the sun at the two solstices he found the inclination of the equator to the horizon which determined the latitude of the place and by taking half their difference he found the inclination of the ecliptic to the equator there seems to be good reason to think that he did actually determine the latitude of sparta but it is more doubtful whether he really made the rest of these astronomical deductions we need not here concern ourselves further with the successors of thales the school he established continued to flourish till about four hundred b c but as time went on its members occupied themselves more and more with philosophy and less with mathematics we knew very little of the mathematicians comprised in it but they would have seemed to have devoted most of their attention to astronomy they exercised but slight influence on the further advance of greek mathematics which was made almost entirely under the influence of the pythagoreans who not only immensely developed the science of geometry but created a science of numbers if thales was the first to direct general attention to geometry it was pythagoras says proculus quoting from eudemus who changed the study of geometry into the form of a liberal education for he examined its principles to the bottom and investigated its theorems in an intellectual manner and is accordingly to pythagoras that we must now direct attention End of part one of chapter two.